And here you look from the high burn down to the low burn, and that is a absolute fantastic view. Welcome to the Almanac of Ireland. I charge my students five euro per person for this view. <laughs> Which they then, of course, don't pay. We're in the Burren, just below the swirling limestone hill that is Mullock Moor, looking for a nice field. Is that a good enough field for you? That's a good field. That's Matthijs Schouten, and he has indeed found the perfect Burren field, with just the right amount of undulations and protruding stones to make us carefully watch where we're walking as we look for a place to settle ourselves. And the reason that we've come here, me and the producer Colette, is to talk to Matthijs about nature about how we might start to build a better relationship with it. One where we cherish and respect it, rather than, well, the opposite. Matthias is an environmental philosopher, a conservationist and a professor of ecology and nature conservation at the School of Environmental Sciences at UCC. He's also a meditation teacher and a strategist for the Dutch Forestry Commission. You've brought us to a hidden spot But I'll never find this again. I might as well have been brought here blindfolded. We started this conversation in the last episode of The Almanac of Ireland. And it's worth listening back to that first, if you have time. Matthijs was explaining how we arrived at where we are now, in this climate emergency. And he also outlined some reasons why we really need nature. Being disconnected from the natural world is a very lonely place, as he puts it. Making us essentially orphans. Let's see. You go wherever you feel comfortable. I feel comfortable everywhere. (laughs) Now, though, I want some advice. This is going to be edited, so I can ramble on forever. I want to figure out where we, you and I, all of us, go from here. And in particular, should we be feeling despair about the climate crisis and and everything? I think that would be the, the worst thing to do. I, I usually claim in my lectures we have an environmental crisis, we have an ecological crisis, we have a climate crisis, we have a social crisis emerging. And that may be a cause of despair. But I'm very, very afraid of despair in the sense that I feel that, and I see it with a lot of people, people are getting desperate and have the feeling that there's no guarantee of a safe future anymore. I ask my students very often at the end of a year, who's optimistic about the future? 30 years ago, everyone was. Now it's maybe 20-30%. And I think that's a new crisis. That's the crisis of feeling powerless. And when you lose your feeling of empowerment, either you just start dancing at the, at the edge of the volcano, or you, um, you completely despair and uh, stop living. And I feel the most important thing at the moment is the sense of empowerment, the feeling that every one of us matters. Each one of us can make a change. Because when I ask my students, why are you not optimistic? They say, ah, yeah, the political system, the economic system, the financial system, the multinationals. And then I always quote Margaret Wheatley. She's American and Wilhelm Schmidt, a a German philosopher. They say, yeah, if you think of changing systems, first of all, that's hubris, when you think that you can change a system. Secondly, you cannot change a system. These systems are emergent systems. They took centuries to develop. We don't even understand how they work anymore. I remember that I asked the director of a very important bank in the Netherlands, can you tell me exactly how the financial system works? And he said, no, I have no idea anymore. So 
we've lost basically on control of systems. So trying to change them, that's a waste of time. And it makes you desperate. Both philosophers claim you should become your own system. You simply live according to your idea of what is right and wrong. You live what you feel that is right in this world. And by doing that, you start resonating. You see, I strongly believe, as an ecologist, that everything is interconnected. And that's the basis of ecology. Uh, every species, every individual has a role to play in this ecosystem. But I also feel that um, everything we do as humans and everything we say and, and even everything we think matters in this world. Hmm? The feeling of powerlessness is a fallacy because by being here, you change the world. Hmm? If you lie in your bed snoring all day or, or win a Nobel Prize, in both cases, it's a different world, you know? Without you, it would be another world. And... That I find important to convey, that we cannot not matter. For me, one of my most important life experiences was a conference. Two young people woke up to me, a young man and woman with a little boy, and I said, may we introduce uh, our son to you? And I said, yeah, please. And they said, this is Matthias. And I said, yeah, it's a nice name, isn't it? And I said, no, 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 he's named after you after which I worriedly had to ask, do I know you? They said, no, I didn't know them, but they had been at a funeral, a funeral of a professor of mine that I had conducted, and he was a Buddhist and had asked me to conduct a Buddhist, Buddhist funeral, whatever that was. I didn't know what it was, but I invented one. And then uh, in that funeral, I cited basically a sermon by the Buddha. And the heart of it, of that sermon, is may all beings be happy and secure, whether they're big, small, seen, unseen, nearby, far away, born or yet to be born, may they all be happy and secure. Those two young people had been at that service and had just heard, I think, one or two weeks before that service that they were pregnant. And they decided not to take the child because they felt too young. They had an appointment in an abortion clinic week after the service, and when they heard these words, may all beings be happy and secure, born, or striving to be born, they looked into each other's eyes and that very moment decided, we'll let the child come. And then eight months later, a boy was born, and then they called the boy Matthias after me, who had read the text because they found Buddha was too big a name. And I can tell you that changed my life, because when I suddenly realized that everything we do, everything we say, how insignificant we seem, think it is, impacts on this world. By just citing a text by the Buddha, a child was born that otherwise would not have been here. And I have no idea what this child will do with his life. So that made me realize that we always, we are interconnected with this world. We cannot do anything in this world without that resonating around us. And that made me very aware of the fact that none of us powerless. We all matter. And the only thing you can do then is not fight systems on your own because that will make you absolutely desperate. It also means that you're not going to dance on the, on the edge of the volcano. You try to live your life according to what you think is right. And when you do that, that will have an impact. And most of that impact you will never see, but it's there. So I think that is the basic attitude that I believe that, that we should take to fight all the crises that we now have. Believe in, in the beauty of this world, believe in the interconnectedness of life, respect all forms of life, respect ourselves, and live accordingly. And then we'll be there in no time. <laughs> Thank you.
So it, it's basically getting out into nature, tuning into it, and allowing that guide us. Basically trusting the impulses that come, the thoughts. Yeah, the, the, the basic thing is be able to step outside your own little world, your own little creations, your own little thoughts and ideas, your own fears and anxieties, and open up to the fact that you're part of a bigger, bigger world. Your social community in which you live, that's extremely important, and I see more and more people in cities isolated, away from social communities. There is a very strong social community here still, huh? but that's dwindling, and we become isolated as individuals in our, in our human community, so connect there again. And that also means uh, connect, <laughs> connect to the idea that people move around and people moving in out of the country and out of the country and not with all these European populist movement, movements where we suddenly feel that uh, all the others should be out. No, we're a global human community, but at the same time also connect with the greater community and do that here in, in beautiful landscapes or basically in your back garden or in, your, in the street. Say hello to the tree in the street every morning, because that's also a being that's there. And in that way, find a new sense of membership of a community. And automatically what arises is, I feel a sense of wonder and joy. We all want to be part of, of a community. None of us want, want to be alone. So when you feel that you're part of a, of a bigger world, not only of human beings, but also other than human beings, that gives a tremendous amount of joy. And then just live it. From that comes joy. This joy brings respect, brings consideration, and then you, the only thing you need to do is live it from the morning till the evening. And that will do its work. There's an interesting uh, theory in social science that when 15 to 20 percent of a society have changed their worldview and have started to live accordingly, whole society will change. You only need 20 percent. Huh? I mean, you saw that happen in the 60s and 70s when all the, whatever, the hippies or whatever you want to call them, uh, were there, that was not more than 20% of society. But they changed the Western society within 10, 20 years. We can do the same. So, if 20% of the people have started living the sense of, um, let's say, connectedness with a larger community, the whole society will change. We'll get other politicians. <laughs> <laughs> I think a, a, an element that really helped me learn that I was bigger. So first you can go on a spiritual path yeah, yeah, and yeah. you can see spiritually bigger. But just terms in physical terms, realising I was taught it was my body and then hearing that actually, no, 50% of my body is other microbes, is yeah, other fungus, yeah, is yeah, other yeah. viruses. So, yeah, even I am half of what I think I'm. The rest is yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you use the term interbeing. Is that what yeah. you mean by that? Is that something That's else? what I mean by that. What I mean to say by interbeing, by the way, that's a term phrased by a Vietnamese philosopher. Interbeing means that nothing can exist independent of the world around it. We cannot exist independent of the world around us. I mean, we breathe oxygen. That's, that's produced by plants. The minerals in our body are from all these rocks. Huh? The food we take is produced by this, this earth constantly and by nature. That physically, we cannot exist independent of what is around us. But also, every aspect of your life, the fact we're sitting here on a rock in one of the most beautiful places in the burn. But when you realize what was necessary to bring us here, you came on a train which means there had been people to build the train, the, tra the trails. There had to be a conductor, someone driving the train. Um, numerous people have been involved in getting you here. 
The fact that we're sitting here talking in, in, in the way we're talking is due to our parents who brought us into this world, all our educators, all the people that influence us. What we are here in this moment is the result of a myriad of connections with myriads of people, myriads of aspects of nature. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. That's interconnectedness. And when you realize that, that's the most beautiful thing you can realize. You're carried by this world. And then, when you don't realize that, you become an orphan, basically separated. I, I, I don't believe in sin, but I believe in the hell of separation. Huh? When you feel separated from the world, that's hell. But when you feel that you're basically the result of a, an endless amount of interactions and processes, that gives you a place of home, a place of belonging, and automatically brings respect and love for the world in which we are. So I think that realization that we are interconnected and don't exist as separated autonomic entities, that's for me the, the, the key to a sustainable future. That realization, which, by the way, was a realization that many civilizations in this world had. That's central to Buddhism, that's central to all kinds of tribal um, uh, systems, central to Taoism, was central to ideas of uh, Western dissidents as well. St. Francis said it, and there were loads of other Western thinkers, but mainstream thought has separated us from the world that carries us, which is a sad state of affairs. And I hadn't realized the level of conditioning I had, how, how actually I did believe I was a steward yeah, of yeah. nature. Until then I started keeping pigs and hens yeah, recently. Yeah, yeah. And I fully assumed that I was the boss of the pigs <laughs> and hens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But should we be re-evaluating that? What should our relationship be to those domesticated animals? I feel our, our relationship with domesticated animals, but with any animals, but domesticated or close to us, is a sense of partnership. You share a partnership. Which, by the way, was a was uh, was uh, very at the fore of the image of the human nature, human nature relationship in many civilizations. They considered um, domesticated animals that um, we protected, we fed, we made sure that we were not eaten by all the predators, and what they gave us back in return was uh, their body. So there was a sort of pact: you had to respect the animal because the animal would give its life and therefore you have to treat it very well. I mean, the, the, the Judaic laws say that you have to feed the animals before you go to, to dinner. Huh? That's the idea, the sort of partnership. And I think that would be very important in our dealing with animals, but I, I feel with basically all living beings, that we realize that we are not the rulers, nor the stewards. Stewards is also sort of... Sort of um, a position that we take over over the others. We're in a partnership. You work in a partnership. In, in old India, and I always loved this, there was a sort of unwritten law that you had, you had numerous villages, you had a village, that's where people lived. Around the village was what they called the wan, uh, the that's the, the forest. And forest could be anything that means it's not fully cultivated. And you had first, you had uh, the Shriwan, that was the area outside the village where you planted your mango trees and your, your banana trees, etc., etc., where you basically practiced cultivation. And the law was that wild animals and wild plants could be there as long as they didn't harm the crops. Then you removed them, not killed them, preferably. Uh, Hindus didn't like to kill. And then um, you had a next zone that was, was called the, the Tapawan, that's the forest of austerity. That's where you went when you wanted to become enlightened. Huh? There, there you sought 
spiritual enlightenment. And that's where the ashrams were, where all the hermits were. Or the, the, the single hermits also went there. And the rule was there, you could be there and meditate and do your thing, but you would not be allowed to harm the wild plants and animals. You were a guest there. Otherwise you had to be removed. <laughs> and we have both zones. The, the, the first zone is basically the, 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 the traditional rural landscape. Huh? And when, when wild animals and plants come that harm the crops, we remove them. The second we also have, because that's our nature reserves, uh, or, or national parks, where we go to recreate. And that's to basically recreate ourselves. That's, that's also a, a spiritual process. It's not just having fun, but exactly. So that's the old Tapuan. But the Indians had a third zone. And the third zone was the Mahawan, the big forest. And humans were not supposed to go there. That belonged to nature. And I feel that's a perfect zonation of a partnership. That's what you do in a human relationship as well. I mean, when you have a partner, there's parts that you share, parts that the other me come into, but where you say, no, it's my own private domain, and they're domains that you never share. They're very personal. Huh? That's a true partnership, and, 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 and it's, it's, it's an equal partnership. And we've lost that sense of uh, nature having a right to have its own domain completely. I gave a lecture on this topic at a certain time, and then there was, were a number of people who said, we should have places that belong to nature in Holland as well. So they set up an organization, they called it the New Wildernesses, and they uh, designated a few areas owned either by the State Forest uh, Organization, which is also the uh, State Department for Nature Conservation, and some private owners, and they were given back to nature. A royal highness closed them formally off, children wrote their dreams about what was going to happen there, and no one was supposed to enter them anymore. Now, Ecologists and conservation were very happy until we told them, no, no, you're not supposed to go in there anymore. And they said, but we need to monitor. No, no monitoring. But then questions were asked in Parliament. Because <laughs> there were a number of politicians who said, uh, this is ridiculous, because how can nature be entered into the registry office as owner of itself? <laughs> I mean, our culture doesn't allow this. <laughs> but it is the idea of partnership. Brilliant. That's lovely. <laughs> so how many minutes do you have on radio? Yeah, I'm all... Oh, about five. <laughs> Thankfully, we had a lot more than just five minutes worth of conversation and wisdom with Matthijs Schouten. But there was something else that was a dull negetabotum, as they say, or burning the scab into me that I was itching to ask. And it's how exactly does he feel when he's in a place like this, connecting with nature? I couldn't put it into words. The point is when, when, when I'm here, words have no, have no big meaning anymore. It's the, the silence of a sense of wonder. Simply the sense of wonder, to which I cannot even put my own concepts into mind. Because the moment I give a word... I overlay what is here or my experience with a, a words are always a concept, it always enshrines something and this cannot be enshrined into anything. And what it basically does to me, it makes me, um, although I speak very much <laughs> in my life, these are the places where I'm a bit speechless. And from that are always born new images, new feelings, new ideas. So in that sense, they're really places of recreation. Ultimately, it's all about 
care for ourselves and care for the world, and they go together. When you see yourself as separate of this world, you stop really caring for yourself because you are part of the world. And in refining it, that has been the great joy of my life. I mean, I come here every year, and, and when I don't do this, uh, I am in a city in Holland. I'm a very beautiful place. I'm very happy there. But without this, um, there's always the, the, the danger of slipping into orphanship. You get my drift? And here... I'm fully human again. And, and that is such a great joy, living with nature and discovering nature and, and working for nature and being tribute to nature has been made a very happy person. You're in a good position to see possible solutions. Are you seeing any solutions emerging that are making you optimistic? Oh, yeah. What I see everywhere, wherever I go, wherever work I do, there are people largely young people, largely female. The males lag behind a little bit, who simply don't want to live in the way that we have been living for the last half century. And they're even risking whatever senses of safety they have for the future, like I have to get a secure job and I have to whatever, and they're setting up their own, their own organizations, their own enterprises, their own education centers, their, whatever they do. And they do that also in what I find amazing. It's very ecological, fluid networks. I mean, in the past, we always, then you set up an organization and a board and you have to have funding, etc., etc. What these people do, they have an idea and start sharing it and people join and then they make other fluid networks and something happens here and something happens there and things are changing and happening. And there's a buzz in it. There's a joy in it. And there's also optimism in it. And I see that stronger and stronger. We now in the Netherlands have, uh, have something that came in, by the way, from, from I think they started in Portugal and then in France. It's called Fête de la Nature. We celebrate nature. And in the last weekend of, um, of uh, May, uh, all over the country, people are celebrating nature. And they do that by uh, going on morning walks. Or they do that by going watch fish in a pond. Or they do that by um, talking about organic food. Or they do that by looking at bees. Or they do that by dancing uh, whatever lovely dances in, in, in the middle of a field. But they're celebrating that there is nature and that we're part of nature and that nature helps us and feeds us. It's a celebration. And I feel that is important in this time of despair that we celebrate and and have as many celebrations as possible. At the same time, also bring back rituals. We've lost the sense of ritual. Our rituals now are Christmas, feeding yourself to death, forgetting what it was all about. It was about midwinter. The rituals of spring, the rituals of, of autumn, lunasats, all these beautiful things we, we've forgotten. They were very part, very much part of, a, of, of, of a traditional life, where you celebrate through rituals the cycles, whatever happens in your life. We should be developing new rituals for our relationship with this world. So, celebrate and rituals. It's also part of the solution. <laughs> yeah, one final question. So you're like truly an internationalist. You're rooted to the Dutch culture and the Dutch landscape, but you, but you would have this, this Weltanschauung. And yet you're drawn to Ireland. <laughs> Do you think, is, have the people of Ireland kept some connection with the land? With oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've, I've always wondered 
I first came here as a student in 1973, and I remember that we sailed from, from England to Wexford. And when the, the, the ferry came closer to the coast in Wexford on an afternoon on a Friday, I saw the coastline and there was this immediate feeling of coming home which I've only had in one other country in the world, and that was Myanmar, when I was there a couple of years ago. And whenever I land in Holland, I have the feeling that I'm going to spend some time there. When I come to Ireland, it's an immediate feeling of, of coming home. And I've always wondered why this is. And ultimately, the rational conclusion that I have is it is because when I arrived here, what was immediately palpable is that the landscape, and the humans living in it still had a sort of very intimate connection. And that was the 70s. I mean, agriculture had not intensified and, and people were, uh, couldn't disconnect from the landscape. They didn't have the technology and all the money. So that was there, this feeling of this is a, a world that has grown over centuries where nature and humans live together. And not always with a happy outcome for humans because it has been harsh and bitter as well. But there was this direct relationship. And that has changed, of course, in many parts of the country and changed through all kinds of innovations. But still, I feel that um, somewhere in the Irish psyche or the Irish soul, this memory of the land and the, the place, the sense of place, maybe that's it. In, in modern, in modern uh, environmental philosophy, the sense of place has become a very important concept. Huh? That, that, that you, have, you have a relationship to a place, a physical place, also, it can also be a conceptual place because the Irish have been very good at having a sense of place at a distance <laughs> where, they, where they're not even are, but it's a sense of place. This, this place of belonging uh, and the, the, the sense of belonging to a environment is very important. Uh, and there's much, much research at the moment, and, and by some philosophers it's claimed that uh, there's a philosopher who speaks about fluid modernity because we constantly move around and don't settle in one place or don't remain very long in place. We lose the sense of place that also makes us lose our sense of identity. And the sense of place is very crucial in our well-being. And I think that's maybe what, what I find very important in Ireland, the sense of place. I, I hear people ask, uh, where are you from? Clare. Yeah, which part of Clare? Oh, you're McCarthy. Is that that town? Which side of the street? This whole idea of belonging somewhere, and that sense of belonging, I think, that's something I've felt here very strongly. The Dutch don't have that, that sense of belonging because we were first of all colonizers and we changed our entire landscape and we sold out whatever we could sell out. But the sense of belonging and place, maybe that's what, what still brings me here. And it's even wider. Like, tourists will, you know, the... the um the satisfaction report by tourists coming to Ireland mm. is off the charts. And it's not for the quality of the roads, yeah. it's not really the quality of the food or the quality of the infrastructure. It seems that they connect with nature yeah, here. Yeah. So then I wonder, does Ireland have a role in this, in this need we need to do to connect to humanity? Because we didn't advance or modernise, perhaps, mm-hmm. perhaps we have an understanding of that sense of place, of that belonging. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's just, you know, small-minded and parochial to think. No, no. I, I think I find Ireland at the moment the most fascinating country in Europe for many reasons. Uh, I, I always claim that Ireland moved from pre-modern to post-modern without ever having been modern. And in a way, you could say that's a disadvantage, but also an advantage. Because a lot of the things that we went through in the continent in a, in a process of modernization didn't happen here. Because Ireland simply had to lag behind for all kinds of economic reasons. Whereas modernization was taking place, there were those consequences. 
it wasn't happening here yet. And then suddenly, within a few decades, Ireland became postmodern without having to go through all these bloody discussions and disputes about whatever. You can basically now, I always feel, create your own future in a postmodern way. And in a way you're doing it. What I find fascinating that, uh, that you have, for instance, a prime minister who's half not Irish, openly gay, and no one cares. We in Holland want the most liberal country in the world. If we would now have a prime minister who was half Indian and openly gay, half the population would be upset. So that means that Ireland suddenly, suddenly has leapt ahead in many ways, for me, is showing a way to the future. And when you will be able, as a nation, to also deal with, on the one hand, the demands of modernization, intensification for economic reasons, and wet that with a good care of the environment, and you still have a reasonably good environment, you still have fascinating landscapes left. If they can be taken with us into a safe economic future, Ireland can play a leading role in showing how it's done. No, no, I, I, I'm very, very, very um, impressed by what's happening in this country. Brilliant. That you get, you get back to your day off. <laughs> I don't have a day off. I have, I'm, I, there's a, do you know Gesha Kinderman? She works in, 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 in. Of course, Matthijs doesn't have a day off. Everything is connected. Living, playing, praying and working. His life is one unified ecology. I'd never thought about it, but of course, separating everything into different categories is how we end up isolating ourselves from nature too. And that, as he says, will leave us orphaned. But I think the key teaching I want to take from Matthias is that idea of not trying to change systems. It's futile. They're now beyond understanding by anyone, and so beyond control. Much better to just be our own systems and let things resonate out from there. Instinctively, we want to be out fixing problems, controlling them, separating them into pieces, rather than being the solution, embracing everything, realising we are connected to everyone and everything else. That, according to Matthijs, at least, is how we can overcome our feelings of powerlessness. It's a whole different way of thinking, but I'm willing to try it. This has been The Almanac of Ireland, presented by me, Moncon McGann, and produced by Colette Kinsler. The series was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee. And it's a Red Hair Media production for RT Radio.